everybody, this is Rave Telsh, and this is episode 7 of Have Not Seen This, a weekly in-depth look at a much-beloved movie, selected specifically by our guest, but they're a little surprised when they find out people have not seen. When I was 13 years old, Halloween changed for me. See, at 13 years old, our parents decided that that was a little too old to go trick-or-treating. So while my mother and my best friend's mother took our sisters to go out and get candy, my best friend and I stayed home with his dad to watch our first horror movie. And that horror movie was House. Maybe not the best selection for a first horror movie. It's more on the comedic side, but I still remember that. And that really started a tradition of Halloween horror films every year, a tradition that everybody seems to have. Last week, for our Friday Inquiry, I asked on social media, what is your must-see Halloween movie to visit each year? And I got a ton of answers. Marcus Stefanski said The Exorcist, Steve Buchta, Sleepy Hollow, Chris Eklund, The Shining. Kim Akers said Fright Night. Adam Thomas said Trick or Treat. And as a side note, Adam Thomas is the other half of Double Edge Double Bill. We had Thomas Mariani on our second episode, and they just covered Trick or Treat in uh, a recent episode. I highly recommend you go check that out to see why Trick or Treat is such a worthwhile endeavor. Brian Ward also said Trick or Treat, as well as The Cabin in the Woods and The Shining. And then we kind of changed tone here. Beth Smith Stockner said, I go pretty tame, Hocus Pocus, Casper, Adam's Family. Monica Siegfried said, Hocus Pocus, Sleepy Hollow, It's the Great Pumpkin, Charlie Brown, I Never Do Horror. India Ham said, Hocus Pocus and Practical Magic. Thomas Mariani surprised me with his answer, the Disney animated Sleepy Hollow. And James Jackson chimed in with Nightmare Before Christmas, it can be for both holidays. Just to respond to some of those movies, I will say I made it through yet another Halloween without having seen Hocus Pocus. And for some reason, I feel like that's probably going to get me the most hate mail that I've gotten for this podcast yet, but I still have not seen Hocus Pocus, and I have zero interest in doing so. It's kind of almost become a a challenge now of can I get through the holiday season without seeing it. I have no doubt that if I sat down and watched it, I probably would enjoy it, but now it's just become so popular, it's almost like I feel like I have to try and avoid it at all costs. So another year successfully not seen Hocus Pocus. I love a lot of these movies. The Exorcist is still one of the scariest movies I've ever seen. Uh, The Shining, I don't... I love it for what it is. It is not Stephen King's The Shining, but I enjoy it for Kubrick's The Shining, and I'm looking forward to the sequel coming out soon. Cabin in the Woods is one of my favorite horror movies in recent years, and uh, who can't love Disney's Legend of Sleepy Hollow? So that, of course, went on social media last Friday. On Fridays, I post those questions. You can follow us on Twitter at Have Not Seen This and on Facebook at Have Not Seen This Podcast. Now, last week I teased that this week's episode would feature a Lovecraftian horror story just in time for Halloween. Unfortunately, due to scheduling conflicts, we weren't able to actually get that episode recorded in time for this week, but that's okay. It was only a happy accident that that episode was falling on this week in the first place. Now, maybe next year I'll have my uh, proverbial ducks in a row enough to do a month of horror stories, but as a new and still developing podcast, that just wasn't an option this year. So... Lovecraftian horror story is coming probably next week, but for this week, we're going to talk a little bit about memory. For example, 
I opened this podcast with a story about 13-year-old me watching my first horror movie. But I also talked on our very first episode about how I watched Alien with that same good friend when I, for my 13th birthday. And my birthday falls three days before Halloween. So which was my first horror movie, Alien or House? And the truth is, I don't remember. And to a little degree, that terrifies me. Losing those details of our experience is one of my biggest fears. And it's something that this week's selection deals with. The movie is Robot and Frank from 2012. And I can't think of a better person to bring this movie to me than my own dad, Ron Telsch. Dad appeared on some of the Father's Day episodes when we did the Weekly Blend audio show, and he was, again, one of the first people I went to to try and select a movie for this, simply because he's had such a huge experience on me as far as films go. In fact, I'm currently writing a horror movie script, and as soon as I sat down to start working on that, I thought about him telling a teenage me when we were watching a horror movie that if I ever had a character fall down when they were running away from a pursuer, he would probably disown me. And I'm sure he was kidding about that, but those words still resonate with me. A lot of the movies that I love were ones that were introduced to me by my dad, and this one's no exception. Robot and Frank 2012, it's a fantastic movie, and I hope you check it out and listen to me and my dad talk about it. So here we go with Robot and Frank. Yeah, I'm good. I'm good without a robot right now. <clears throat> I've got enough with the uh, Google Home and uh, Alexa and all that jazz. So, cool. <laughs> oh, that's Alexa now talking about all the jazz. <laughs> yeah, you can't say the A word. It just automatically activates. Okay, Alexa, stop. Alexa, stop. I'm going to put her under a pillow. Okay. Well, as long as you don't say her name, it shouldn't activate. Yeah, who knows? I mean, we're going to converse for a while. So <laughs> it's all about computers, isn't it? And robots. It is. It is. What? Uh, what's the earliest movie you remember going to see? Earliest movie? Probably Treasure Island. Disney's Treasure Island? Yeah. Okay. In the 50s, somewhere in there? Yeah. Yeah. And I know that one holds a special place for you. It was either that, that that one does. It was that or possibly Swiss Family Robinson. They all came out about the same time. There was a slew of uh, Davy Crockett movies and Daniel Boone movies and all that stuff. And Tarzan. So one of those. <laughs> Always so a bunch of Disney stuff or that, Tarzan. <laughs> that's right. Um, but, you know. That, that's just uh, where I was at the time. I mean, we were post-World War II. Uh, Korean War uh, was in progress when uh, I was born uh, or just just after I was born. And, uh, you know, the country needed some let's feel good about our spirit, our morale, and let's have good win over evil. Right. So that was what was going on at the time. So I, I guess uh, when Disney Plus comes out, in a couple of weeks, we know what uh, section of the, their catalog you're going to be watching. I would imagine, yeah. Because <laughs> all of those are going to be on there. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I can't wait. So Yeah, I'm, I'm excited about it. Of course, my focus is more the uh, Star Wars and Marvel type stuff, but yeah. Yeah. 
it'll be fun to introduce Zane to some of those classic Disney movies as well, assuming oh, I, I can get his attention on it. I think so. They're they're dated uh, in some places, certainly, uh, certainly about gender balances and all of that. But uh, you know, the main theme is stand up for yourself. You know, don't get pushed around by bullies, all that stuff. Particularly Treasure Island, one of my favorites. Another question for you. Yeah. When I was working for Cinema Blend and we were doing the original podcast, at one point you made a list of movies every parent should show their child. Do you nope. remember writing that? Uh, yeah, vaguely. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember what movies you put on that list? Good ones. Well, of course, I was hoping for something a little more specific. <laughs> um, uh, well, I can look it up and see if I still have that filed somewhere. Well, just I was I was talking the the episode that aired today. We were talking about nostalgia and those movies from essentially my childhood that have had this huge nostalgic draw on people. And one of the things I commented on is I'm trying to show my son. Uh, some of those movies from my childhood. So like I've shown him Goonies. Right. Uh, I've shown him The Dark Crystal. Right. And it's been really an interesting process for me because he's been very resistant to watch them. But then once he sees them, he really likes he them. He likes them a lot. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think the interesting thing about uh, children watching the previous generation is that uh, one, they get to see where technology has gone. Like from my days, when you look at some of the science fiction that came out when I was a child, um, you know, the beast with a million eyes, the fly, all of those kind of uh, creepy crawly movies, they were all done with like puppets and shadows and things. And now we've got all that computer aided design and it all is just amazingly real. Uh, in fact, right. uh, you, I know that you know my friend uh, Tad Dynakowski. Uh, Tad tells yes. tells a story about his grandmother. He was talking to her about the Apollo moon landing, and she said that she didn't believe that that happened, that that wasn't real. Men did not walk on the moon. But then in the same conversation, they turned it around and he had showed her E.T., she absolutely believed it and thought that E.T. was real. So you've got generations that skip in both directions. So the Apollo moon landing was not real, but extraterrestrials are. <laughs> right. Well, that was that was one of my selling points with Zane is we watched a more contemporary film, uh, one of the superhero movies. And there was a, a scene in it that was a little frightening. And when the scene ended, he looked at me and said, that didn't scare me because I know it's not real. It's all done in a computer. So like when I showed him The Dark Crystal, my I, one of the things I introduced him to was computers didn't exist at the level they exist at when this movie was made. Everything in this movie was real. It was made practically. So these things really existed. And I, I don't know how much that impacted him watching it, but he couldn't just excuse things away by saying, oh, it's just computer graphics. Right. You, you may recall that when I took you all to see Dark Crystal in the theater, uh, we went with our friend Eldon Carr. Yep. I'm hoping to have Will on the podcast soon, actually. Oh, that's lovely. Well, Eldon certainly has passed away uh, now. But uh, when we were watching that, it got to probably within the last five minutes of the movie. And Eldon and I both, if you look at the different generations, I was kind of having a panic attack. I thought that evil was going to win. 
<laughs> it took, mm. You know, I really had to watch it to the end to make sure that the world was going to be okay. And what had I brought my children to? So we both had a very different reaction to that film than you all did uh, being, mm -hmm. being younger children. So, you know, it all, all depends on your perspective. And in fact, that's part of uh, the movie for today is looking at that difference in perspective from where you are, what you know, what you remember, what you can anticipate. And how do you move forward? So, Well, I'm going to take advantage of that segue and move us into the conversation about today's movie, which is Robot and Frank from 2012, directed by Jake Schreier, written by Christopher Ford, starring Frank Langella, James Marsden, Liv Tyler, Peter Sarsgaard, Susan Sarandon, Jeremy Strong, Jeremy Sisto, and Rachel Ma. Can I help you find anything? Where is the librarian? Hey, Frank. Hey there. What'll it be? The usual? I'd be more interested in getting your phone number. Call from Madison Wells. Maddie, my girl. Hi. Has Hunter been coming around? Dad, you're right in the middle of the road. Look at this place. This is gross. You have a problem. I brought you something. Hi, Frank. You have got to be kidding me. That thing is going to murder me in my sleep. Somebody's going to murder you in your sleep. Frank, you need a project. Today we're going to start a garden. I'm not gardening. My program's goal is to improve your health. I would rather die eating cheeseburgers than live off steamed cauliflower. This is Jake Finn. He's been filling me in on the plans for the new library. So it's his project. you must remember the days when this library was the only way to learn about the world. Sounds like the same people who stopped coming here want to take away what's yours. They're going to have this fundraiser party thing on Friday, and all the young hoity-toity couples are going to come. Sounds awful. Yeah. Do you want to come with me? Yes. Cool. There they are. Frank, you're so square, you're practically avant-garde. What the hell did you just say to me? <laughs> Look at all the jewels. These people are loaded. You know what stealing is? I don't have any thoughts on that. I know exactly who the first mark is going to be. Okay, let's see what you can do. According to your file, you were first arrested for possessing stolen goods. I specialized in jewelry. That was your best time yet. I'm getting the hang of it. We're going to clean up. I'm glad to see you so enthusiastic. I haven't felt this good in years. Hello? Frank, it's me. What's going on in there? Frank Weld is a suspect in a multi-million dollar robbery up the road. What? I'm kind of a, in a bit of trouble. Of course you are. I gotta get rid of all the evidence. Frank, my memory can be used against you. Don't you touch that robot, Frank! Get in. Frank! Frank! You're starting to grow on me. Thank you, Frank. It's time for your enema. I've led a very uh, colorful life. I need him. What do you need him for? He's my friend. Okay, so my first question... <laughs> Why did I pick this one? <laughs> no, that's actually the second question. Uh, the, first, okay. the first question is... <laughs> and I have an interesting way to put that second question. So uh, the first question is... I have not seen this movie. How do you sell me on seeing it? Why is this important? Why should I see it? Are you saying that you didn't take time to watch it or that's just <laughs> positing a question like, why should I see this? Hypothetical. I've, I've seen it. It would Thank be a really you. boring podcast if I hadn't. Uh, uh, well, I don't know. I've heard your podcast. So I don't know. <laughs> 
<laughs> oh. <laughs> All right. Well, let me tell you a little something about what my preferences are. And some of this has to do with my current age, I'm sure, and kind of the innocence that I grew up with as a child in the movies we had already uh, enumerated earlier. Um, this is just an all-around nice movie. It has nice characters. They're interesting, you know, plot twists, but nothing that's going to be thrown up in your face. There's nothing harsh. Like if you take a fall in life, you want to fall on the soft parts, not on the sharp parts. So don't fall on your elbows, fall on your buttocks, basically. So (laughs) this movie deals with that. There's hard edges in life and there's soft ways to approach it. Um, so if we look at nice movies, one of the reasons I picked this movie was because one, I, I don't think you'd—I hadn't thought that you had seen it—and two, um, I live with a woman who watches nice movies. We do a whole lot of British television because it's just a, a little bit more gentle. Uh, the the village life and the cast of characters and all of that. And we do some mystery and some plot twists that you don't see coming. So as I looked at nice movies, I thought of The Bookshop, a relatively recent one, This Beautiful Fantastic, Mrs. Palfrey at the Claremont, About Time, Ladies in Lavender, and Robot and Frank just kind of fell in and I thought, well, yeah, because a lot of folks in your generation uh, very much are attracted to computers and technology and all of that because you started life in a world that had that already. Right. I started in life when the world didn't have technology. Televisions were just coming out when I was born. So we we didn't have that. We didn't have, oh, yeah, you go to the moon. That was new. You know, so from a technological point of view, I thought it had some appeal because it takes us from robots. If we we go back and look at the day the Earth stood still, the original Michael Rennie, you have this Mm -hmm. robot called Gort. And Gort only has two things to do. He's programmed for two things. Save... uh, Klaatu, who is the Michael Rennie character, so that famous right. line, Klaatu, Barada, Niktu, um, and destroy anything that he wants you to destroy, including the entire planet. That's it. There's the software. Gort's just this big mechanical thing. Then you move up to 2001 Space Odyssey, and you have Hal. Hal had a single purpose. He wasn't either sinister or friendly. He just was a computer. He was just a voice. He was programmed to do everything that he was doing. It just came out differently because it was in a voice. So we humanized the robot, but the robot was pretty much one-dimensional. I can't do that. I can't do this. And uh, Hal wouldn't open doors. He wouldn't close doors. He wouldn't do whatever was being requested because his programming said, don't do that. Not because he wanted to. He wasn't into doing it. In Robot and Frank, the robot learns. He learns how to do things that are wrong, and he knows it. And he learns that there are thresholds of gray in the world. There's good, evil, right, wrong, and then there's blend. And it was that interesting aspect of this film that caught my attention. So you kind of answered this question, but but just to 
to reiterate it because I, I find this interesting with with no disrespect intended. You're the oldest guest that I've had on the show and probably will have on the show for some time. And yet you've picked the most contemporary film out of all of those that have been selected. This is 2012. This isn't that old a movie. All of cinematic history, you know, you talked about the movies, the feel-good movies of, of your generation, the, the trying to cheer people up after the war, that kind of stuff. Why this one? Well, I, I was just, you know, this. I didn't posit this as the most perfect movie or the best of all time. You know, the request was uh, name a movie I haven't seen. But that's of the, of the ilk that I'm watching now at my right. age, these nice films. When I was a child, I didn't know they were nice films. I just watched them. That's all Disney was putting out. You know, they didn't they didn't say any bad words. They didn't do evil things. There wasn't torture, mayhem, abuse, all of that uh, that we've come to uh, incorporate into our planet. Do you think you connect with the protagonist here being an elderly gentleman uh, with a movie about an elderly gentleman who's having trouble adapting to this technological world? Um, yes. I, I, I think in large a large part, and I thought it was performed well. Uh, the, but the 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 interesting facet of that was not just the man's age; it was the. Uh, and it, do, do we do spoiler alerts with this podcast? I, I don't know how much. The- yeah, I mean, we're gonna we're gonna talk about the movie uh, in depth. So oh, yeah, okay. Anyway, he the the man is dealing with uh, his uh, cognitive functions and mental capacities, so he's uh, essentially suffering from dementia. And his family, right. his family is quite worried about him. Well, uh, we've been going through uh, in uh, my uh, uh, my wife's family. We've been going through these bouts of dementia, as both of her parents um, have exhibited uh, uh, dementia, and uh, it's it's forefront in our minds. We are interrupted daily uh, to attend to those issues of not understanding, not doing, can't respond, that kind of thing. So, uh, you know, that was important to me. What, one of the things about the, the character, not just the age of the uh, main character, but that he also is learning. He also has to review his life and see what's true, what's honest, what did he teach his children? And so he reflects often about, well, I always wanted to teach my son how to uh, pick locks, <laughs> you know? And it's like, well, that was his trade, uh, but he somewhat is learning that that's probably not a good idea or that it was a good thing that he didn't have the opportunity to do that. Well, but he he did to some degree because when he gives his daughter, played by Liv Tyler, the jewelry Later in the movie, he says, keep them out of sight and then pawn them. And her response is, I know the drill. Yeah. So it's obviously something he's done with them before. Yeah. Well, it, 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 yeah, she plays a great, in, interesting character. I don't know whether it's a great character, but Madison Wells is, a, is an interesting character. If you look at the opening of the film, the first line in the film is robotic. It's the, te- right. it's the telephone call that says, call from Madison Wells. So she's introduced right at that cusp right there where technology meets him. Uh, and then he's always talking to her from another room, which is interesting. But that's a, that's a sidebar. So Yeah, you've, you've, you've said so many things that are jumping off points that now I'm going to have trouble following a, uh, a narrative here. But <laughs> no, that's great. I guess jumping on the dementia point, because you brought that up 
one of my notes that I made was how well played the dementia is. It's not, it doesn't define Frank as a character. Right. It's subtle little moments here and there. Right. It's especially like with Harry's, the restaurant that he keeps saying that he's going to go to. Right. And like the first time he has the phone conversation with his son and he says he's going to go to Harry's and his son says, you know, that's been closed for, for a while now. Yeah. And his response was, well, I just ate there last week. And then he goes there and it's this uh, blushes beauty bar. Right. And the woman there says that she chided him last week for potentially shoplifting and she's keeping an eye. So he's been there before. And at that point in the film, I couldn't tell if he's actually suffering from dementia or if he's just fucking with his kid. <laughs> well, uh, no, yeah, I, I think it was uh, an aspect of his dementia, uh, tell you the truth. If you look at the main, yeah. main themes and almost every character, I mean, I didn't sit there with a notepad, obviously, but there are three lines that keep coming up from various characters throughout the movie. One is, you don't understand. The other is, I'm fine. And this includes the robots as well. How are you doing, robot? I'm fine. How's the other robot doing? He's fine. Uh, and the third one is, I don't know what to do. And the, the mm. two children say that a lot because it's like, I don't know what to do. And that's what the families of folks uh, who have dementia, those who are living with the uh, uh, person having dementia, often you don't know what to do. So you, you know, collect as much data as you can, do as much research as you can, and make the best educated guess that you can. And that all deals with the overarching themes in the movie, which I think are learning, history, and memory, uh, as we balance dependence and interdependence in our relationships. So Frank doesn't seem very dependent on his kids. I would almost say the interdependence on family is his his kids' dependence upon him and knowing that he's okay. Yes, but then if you add dementia, he doesn't know that he's dependent. That his functioning level had gone down to um, eating poorly in a in a um, home that was unkept. Uh, you know, he was he was not in good surroundings. So the robot's mission was it, it one of its simplest missions. This is the prime directive to improve his health and cognitive functioning. Yeah, he actually says your health supersedes my other directives. Right. So, in fact, that's why he goes along with being uh, a burglar, pretty much, because it's helping him get his mind sharp and to get him to exercise and to walk and you know so. Uh, I, I think part of it is that he doesn't know uh, what he doesn't know. And I want to jump back to the very beginning of the film because you, you brought up the first line being uh, the, the computerized line. But before that, the opening shot is of picking a lock and we are watching a robbery go on. Right. And he knocks over a photo and he – he looks at it and it's very clear from his face. There's no dialogue going on yet. It's very clear from his face, this look of guilt, that this is um, the shattered glass in that picture kind of represents what his actions have done. And then when we get to, we have a, a slight time shift there to morning and he's cleaning up his office, including that picture. So what we see in those first shots is him breaking into his own office, his own desk. 
Do you think that's a piece of his dementia? Do you think that's just him practicing? Because we never get an explanation for it. Um, I I think it is part of his dementia. Uh, it was nighttime, as I recall. Um, yes. I didn't spend a lot of time looking at, re- kind of reviewing that scene. Uh, but uh, often w- with dementia, uh, there are sounds that people hear that aren't there. There are uh, uh, people that appear in a room that aren't there. There are those kind of hallucinations going on. So he may, in fact, been trying to burgle his own home. And the picture uh, obviously reminded him of uh, his past or his family. So it's, and it is shattered. I I had not really picked up on the shattered glass. I knew that it had broken, but I'll have to give that some thought. Well, it was my first time seeing it. And it's one of those, you know, when you're watching a film for the first time, trying to key in on what's going to be significant, what's going to be important. I mean, some things are are very obvious. Like he does the, uh, the kids picking on the robot and he tells him, you know, anybody picks on you again like that, you just, you just say initiate self-destruct and start a countdown. And it's very obvious at that point, that's going to come back into play later on. Right, right. But if you look at the uh, again, you're looking at uh, the initial moments of the film. Uh, there's also a robot in the car. He sits on it, his son's car, and right. then he, go, he the goes toy to, that his kid's toy. Right. He goes to the library, and there's another robot. But the whole town is not populated with robots, so it's kind of new introduction for specific purpose. The library is going to replace the Susan Sarandon character probably at some point. Uh, right. So that's his his family fracturing again, as we find out later in the film. So well, and even without that revelation later in the film, that's that's his uh, very obviously his routine. He he walks to the library, he gets his books, he wants that that's his human interaction. He doesn't have a whole lot of human interaction elsewhere, but going into the library and talking to the librarian and getting help picking out books that's that's what he has. Right. So if he loses that, right. And and then he, of course, the, as the movie evolves, he realizes that some of those books have wealth and and uh, financial um, uh, attachment to them. So you know he goes after that. Interesting that it is, in fact, uh, Cervantes that he's. Uh, yeah, uh, that was yeah. They're they're when not I, too when it, when it reveals it. Don Quixote. That's what I wrote down. Was that very appropriate that this yeah. is Don Quixote? Yeah, here's a man trying to tilt windmills. So I I've been meaning to ask you, what was your favorite line in the movie? Um, two two lines. Uh, one, uh, Frank tells the robot, uh, she doesn't like you. I don't like I don't you either. Like you either exactly. I love that because that C three PO says that to R two D two in the course. Star Wars movie. So it's a very clear right. uh, allusion to Star right. Wars, and I loved that in a movie that's you know full of robots. No, I don't think he likes you at all. No, I don't like you either. Yeah, but um, the the very first breakfast scene that Frank and the robot have together. No, it's the it's after that. It's the gardening scene when they're doing the garden right? and Frank is just sitting there and the robot's doing the garden. And Frank says, can't you speed up? Can't you just do that a lot faster? And the robot says, some things take time, Frank. Yeah. Nice. And I, that line just stood out to me. Nice. Well, and for me, the star Wars, uh, quote, um, uh, it really made me smile, uh, because it's so obvious that's where it came from. And it was wonderful. That's why I also, have two favorite lines from the movie. One of the themes in the film uh, is Frank, and it's and these, these things never go beyond three, so it's well written theatrical script. 
Frank uh, says early on, uh, surely you've got an on-off switch or something to that effect. How do Mm -hmm. we turn you off? And near the end of the movie, and this is the line that I like, the robot says, Frank, just wipe my memory. And that was so touching to me that he was willing to sacrifice himself for Frank because it would help Frank's well-being, cognitive ability, health. So uh, just wipe my memory because the movie is a lot about memory, what you forget, what you remember, what you remember correctly. Well, and that, that, that was another lovely line is when he does finally wipe the robot's memory. Frank's line is, I knew you had an off switch. But it's not said with malice. It's not no. said he's no longer in that same place that he was at the beginning when he was looking for the off switch. Right, right. It's almost, it's almost regretful that he's done this. Right, right. I, I, I was really disappointed with the trailer for this movie, which we heard earlier, because in the trailer, the way they set it up, when the robot says, wipe my memory, Frank says no. And in the trailer, it, is, it appears he's saying no out of affection that he's grown too attached to this robot. And as I watched the movie, and that line comes up a couple of times about how he needs to wipe the robot's memory, I realized after the second time, it's not affection for the robot. It's that his own mind is being wiped by this dementia. Right. And he doesn't want to do the same thing to his companion. Right. Yeah. And I thought that was really powerful. Yeah. It, it, there's a, uh, an amazing blend between the characters the real ones, the unreal ones. And I go back to the E.T. Apollo moon landing story, you know. Right. He has a very real friend in the robot. Well, and he's more connected to the robot when his daughter shows up to try take over. At that point, he's more connected to the robot than he is his own daughter. And I don't think it's just because the robot is his partner in crime. I, I think it's a, a genuine connection at that point. Right, right. Yeah, it's – anyway, part of the reason why I liked it. Uh, it's a nice film. I will tell you a sidebar, though. Though your uh, one uh, brother-in-law, Brian, uh, when he graduated Carnegie Mellon, we went to the graduation ceremony up in Pittsburgh, and um, the chairman of the uh, uh, computer sciences uh, department, uh, where Brian was graduating from, uh, he talked about how they wanted uh, music at the uh, ceremony. And that they uh, took a poll of basically all the students and the faculty. And uh, there was an overwhelming request that they have bagpipes played at the ceremony. And he said they were sitting in a department meeting and they said, they didn't know any bagpipe players. How many of you have them at other universities? The bagpipe bands and all of that are very popular, but not at Carnegie Mellon. I mean, it's a downtown city uh, university with uh, an exceptional science and technology department. So they were sitting around a table, and as the chairman was describing it, he says, then they realized, wait a minute, we have a robotics department, and out comes this robot from behind the stage, wheels <laughs> out into the center of the stage, and starts playing the bagpipes that are strapped to it. Because it's just a series of air through valves, and it was controlled by the computer programming of the robot. Well, it was dynamic, and the whole audience was thrilled and all of that. So what you can do, if you look at the bagpipes being the symbol of, let's remember the old days, the old country, you know, Scotland and back to all of that, and wool and, you know, plaid and all of that stuff, and you hit that with technology, it's as appreciated as the real thing. 
So and isn't that where this movie tries to get us to blend it? Uh, in fact, at the end of the movie, uh, Frank doesn't have his robot anymore. He may, right. may or may not have seen it down the hallway, but he doesn't have a personal attendant. But what he has regained is that he had his children and his ex-wife. Right. He has his family. Yeah. Although he doesn't – one would question whether he remembers how much of them is is his family at that point. Correct. But there's nothing you can do about that. You know, as, as, as our family deals with dementia, and I don't believe you will be dealing with me that way, but as we continue to wrestle with this uh, disorder of, of our beings, uh, you, you come to accept it. You know, it's not going to get better. You can stabilize it. But it's it's a progressive disease, progressive disorder that's always going on to the downslope. And it doesn't matter how much Aricept and other drugs you have a patient take, they're not going to get better. They maybe will stabilize. And often we're too we're too late diagnosing it. And uh, everybody accepts the quirks and the idiosyncrasies of the individual uh, long before you finally go to a physician and they say, oh, they're, they're kind of bat crap crazy. You know, <laughs> they're really out right. there. They're really out there. They, they can't put their thumb and forefinger together and interlock them between their two hands. You know, it's uh, and that's not making light of a serious, serious uh, disorder, but uh, it often takes a, a separate party, a third party to recognize what's really going on. Right. Um, let's talk about his criminal side, um, yeah. which which was the part of the movie I didn't really know about, even though it's featured in the trailer. Somehow, when I had heard about this movie beforehand, I was unaware of of that being a, an element of this. That you know, his family pawns the robot onto him, forcing him to take it, and he somehow turns it into a partner in crime. And I, as you said, the robot kind of makes that a conditional thing of improving him. You know, let's let helping him with the heist because that's keeping his mem his mind active. That's keeping him fit. That's making him do the things that the robot wants. Right. But I find interesting he doesn't really do anything once he's stolen the goods, and we see that from the things that he shoplifts at the beginning to both of the major scores he gets. He keeps talking about they're too hot. We'll have to sit on it a while. And he never does anything with it. Do you do you think he ever would do anything with it? Do you think it would just go into his? It's not a safe; it's just a cabinet behind a painting. But uh, do you think it would just go in there and be forgotten? Or, or what do you think about that side of things? Oh no, I I think one of his driving motivations uh, was to be able to leave it for his children, and that, that's why at the end of the film you realize that the robot had been burying the stuff out under the tomatoes, and right. that's. Um, and he and he told I, I think it was his daughter, not his son. Maybe he told his son. No, he hands a note to his son. His son, yeah. Um, you know, look look under the tomatoes uh, when things have cooled down, basically. So he he knew what he was doing with it. He wanted to give the library book, I think, to his ex wife because she really appreciated the Don Quixote story. But it was too hot; he couldn't do it. And that's when he left his glasses in the library, and you know, you have right. you have that odd scene where the neighbor is involved with the sheriff and all that. That's, that's bad. That's just bad, that part. But, you know, I overlooked that a little bit. <laughs> I thought Jeremy Sisto uh, was really nice as the sheriff, though. He, uh, he's uh, so appreciative of uh, Frank. You know, he knows, he, he knows it's him, but it's like, it's brilliant. How does a man with a robot do this? 
<laughs> so he had that uh, inquisitiveness that every sheriff or detective has that uh, I really appreciated. It was nice and subtle. Yeah. Jeremy Strong playing the, the neighbor, and I didn't catch his name at first. I just wrote him down as library douche. Um, <laughs> <laughs> his name's Jake. And, uh, you know, right. he's just such a condescending shit from the get go. And it's interesting because since this movie came out, Jeremy Strong is uh, in uh, succession on HBO and it's a rich family and it's very King Lear-ish about the kids trying to take control. And his character there is very similar to what he plays here. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting to see him playing this character in 2012 by comparison to the character that they actually try to make you feel sympathetic for on the HBO series. Right. And I also find it interesting that the um, wife of that character, Jake, she's the one, it's her jewelry that is stolen. Right. And we, we somewhat learn that she's a lawyer, but she's never in any of the scenes aggressively trying to get it back in part because I think they set it up that Jake and his wife actually came by all their money by, uh, well, their ill-gotten gains, it appeared. To right. Me. So she's not going to touch it because you can't go to the police over stolen goods. And yet he goes and keeps banging on the police. Go ahead and find this guy. I want my jewelry back. But it's not the wife. She was the recipient of the jewelry. I'm glad you said that you thought that was a poorly written scene because that was the the one criticism I had of the film is he would not be there when the sheriff came. Oh, and absolutely. He certainly not. wouldn't be allowed to be egging on and telling the sheriff and the deputies what to do because he's right. he's the victim here. Like he has no power, he has no authority. And right. I that really bothered me that he was there. Yeah. I, I get why they did it to move the story along, but I, I agree with you. That's probably the, the one weak point of the film. I, I think so, too. Uh, for me, it was the weakest weakest point of the film. So so the robots are really interesting. And, and you, you mentioned the one playing the bagpipes that you've encountered. They're very practically designed here. These are not really science fiction-y robots. They're not sexy at all. They're, they're very practical in their design. Yeah, the, the, uh, the library robot in particular, it's, it's built like it's a uh, receptacle. It's just to uh, reshelf books. Uh, so it has a place to carry them and it has a place to deliver them and that's it. Right. So and doesn't doesn't enter into conversation. But even in that uh, scene in the library between the two robots, Frank is encouraging his robot to have conversation, to develop yes. a relationship. And the other robot doesn't know what he's talking about. He answers the question, I'm fine. But I, th I think Frank's robot, the robot of the title, uh, actually kind of catches on. You know, that's what I'm supposed to do. And you made the comment earlier that his robot learns over the course of the movie. At the same time, his robot knows how to be manipulative from the get-go. That when Frank is refusing to do what the robot says, he, he plays that emotional card. What about me? If you don't do what I say, then they're going to wipe my memory and I'll go away. Right. And he even says later on, I don't care about that. I just exist. I'm not a human. I'm a robot. But right. it's 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 almost as if that that semblance of manipulation is there from the get-go. Yeah. Well, he'll use any means to improve his health and his cognitive functioning. You know, he'll lie to him. He'll make up stories, whatever it is. So we jumped over the critic reviews because uh, we didn't really need that as a jumping off point. But, but just to give you an idea of what the critics said about this, uh, it sits at 86% on Rotten Tomatoes which is pretty good. 75% uh, audience score. So this is one of those cases where the critics liked it better than the audiences. Roger Ebert reviewed it, gave it two and a half stars. 
He said, this is an intriguing setup for a story, and director Jake Schreier moves it along with decorum and quiet humor. There is one scene of genuine emotional impact, and I wish it had been more deeply developed. I also wish Robot had more up his metal sleeves. This is a framework that could have benefited from more irony and complexity, especially with the resources of Langella, but at the end, I felt the movie was too easily satisfied. Uh, on the counterpoint, I have a review from Ian Buckwalter from NPR, who says the story folds in a surprising number of serious themes without ever letting them clash with the lighter touches involved in Frank and the robot's heists. Schreier sensitively blends in thoughts about reliance on technology and ethical questions about how we treat artificial beings, using Frank's own awareness of the disposability of the robot and its easily erased memory to reflect his own anxieties about his own existence and decline. Well, I hadn't read any reviews on it, so... That's yeah. interesting. I take issue with Ebert's statement that there is one scene of genuine emotional impact. I, I feel like there's several. Well, I, I thought so. I mean, it's, I'm the one who recommended it, so I won't go back <laughs> I mean, Ebert sits where he sits, and I sit where I sit. So no thoughts based on those? I, I think Ebert is um, correct that there's more there, and I think that's where you get into sequels uh, or longer movies. And I think it had an appropriate length for what it was getting across. It told a story in subtle ways uh, and wasn't so much in your face. And didn't they didn't need they didn't try to explain a lot of things. They just showed what was going on. You know, he's getting he's learning how to pick locks faster. You know, they didn't talk about that, that you have to get it under 10 seconds or you have to do this or you have to do that. It just evolved. And and maybe he didn't prefer that. But uh, I like the subtle nature of it. You know, it's just one nice movie. Yeah, no, I agree. I, I feel like if they had explained a lot of, of kind of what is absent, it would have weighed down the movie. Like there's a line when, when he and his son, uh, when he's – He's pretending to be sick. His son comes to visit him. And it and it's a setup. Right. We don't we don't fully know. I mean, we I guess we as the audience do know that it's a setup. His son doesn't know that. And there's a a reference he says a, a comment about about before. You know, I'm sorry about how things were before. And it left me wondering, what was it like before? Hmm. You know, how, how were things before this? But at the same time, I'm glad they didn't show me. I'd rather as an audience member be wondering what that relationship was like before than get another five, 10 minute flashback sequence or something like that. I, I, I kind of appreciate right. that they don't lay that out. Well, and the son comes out with that. Uh, he has a line that basically is, uh, um, uh, I'm, I'm glad you weren't there when I was growing up. The best thing you ever did was being locked up so I didn't have to be raised by you. Right, right, right. Well, I, I was close. <laughs> uh, yeah, that was the line. <laughs> but I, I, I agree with you. Uh, I'm glad they didn't delve so much into that stuff. They never explained why they divorced. You know, they'd been divorced a long time because that didn't seem to matter. She liked him coming to the library as much as he liked going to see her. Yeah, I mean, he did. He did what seventeen years in prison, right? I think he said one. One was a seven-year stretch, and one was a ten-year stretch. Seven and ten, and the and uh, I think and one was tax evasion. Yeah, it's interesting. The long stretch was tax evasion, and of course, that's what uh, gets a lot of criminals that they 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 just avoid paying taxes on their ill-gotten gains. So right, well, wasn't that what they got Capone for? Correct. So he thinks it's bogus, but he did the ten years, and there's nothing bogus about that. That's a real chunk of your life. 
Yeah, so I, I, it's interesting that that's he he falls in line with characters that were good at what they did, but bad with their accounting. <laughs> so, right, you, you know, I'm gonna just you know he's he's like a perfect cat burglar, but he did a stretch for tax evasion that was worse than the one for stealing things. So, well, and it's interesting he talks about how he always worked alone when he was a cat burglar. That you know he had he, he says I had my own developed my own techniques, but I never shared them with anyone until now. So it wouldn't have been the robbery that that got him caught because there was nobody to to rat on him. Right, right, and he always found a way in to places that were it was impossible to get in to the average right. to the average individual. You know, oh, you can't get in there; it's on the third floor. And he'd find a way to get up there. So, uh, yeah, he was good at what he did. See, I love a good heist movie, and although it's such a, a small portion of this film, I really loved the, the heist aspects of it. I, I, I thought the, the robot being draped in a black cloak, I thought that was really that, – that was a fond thing to do. I thought he was covering up his shiny parts. Right. Now, I, I think it's interesting in the last couple of years, kind of the old crowd doing heists has – come very much into fashion. Right. You know, you have Clint Eastwood just did uh, The Mule. Uh, I just saw a Michael Caine movie, I think Going in Style is what it's called. And it's it, it's very much kind of related to this, but it's more about the heist, whereas this is more about the individual. Right. Yeah. Well, Why do you think we're seeing a, a, a surge of those kinds of films? Of heist movies? Of, of well, geriatric heist movies. <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, because uh, they were in heist movies when they were younger. <laughs> uh, I don't know. It's a great question. I, I, I don't have an answer to that, I don't think. I mean, it's our population, at least in, in the, the United States, is getting older. Um, the, the silver generation is beginning to take over. Many, I don't know whether it's most yet, are uh, retired. So I think that drives some of that. And we like to see familiar actors, and those actors are older. Right. So, you know, I mean, 20 years from now, you'll be looking at some of today's current actors and um, you know, watching them do old characters because the, an actor can't really go back in time. Right. Um, it, it works the other way. You can make a, an actor look a little bit older, but making them look younger is, is tough. I don't know. So. They're getting better about it. <laughs> There is technology. They always go to uh, photographs of the actors, and it's probably real photos from their own families, but they, they right. always go back and, you know, you can recognize the face uh, and then they Photoshop in the other two characters or something. But that's interesting. I hadn't thought about that. We also like to, uh, you kind of want the underdog to win. And that, and that may be some of it, folks, uh, feeling that that they're they're not being allowed to win, and at least this guy, even though it's wrong, uh, is somehow winning. Uh, but I think the interesting thing about like stealing the Don Quixote text was that he didn't just win stealing it; he won by reading it. Yeah, he kept looking at it, admiring the illustrations, you know, looking at the passages in there because that that book had meaning to him. Yeah, and I I think you're right. I mean, he definitely he was planning on giving it to the librarian, but he found enjoyment in it himself along the way. Right. Right. 
how do you feel about the the film's end? The the last scene, his family comes and visits him. He the first thing he asks his son for the I think third time in the movie is House Princeton, and his son doesn't try to fight him on it this time. And then we get that last shot of him seeing what could be his robot, but then we see he's attached to another person. And then we see another robot similar to that, giving the idea that a lot of the other people in this facility have robots and and Frank doesn't. It's kind of a bittersweet ending, don't you think? Oh, yeah, it certainly is. I, I think it's um, it's sad on several many levels. Uh, but the fact that the son doesn't correct him means that they've just accepted that piece of his dementia. Because often the best response is just to be honest. You know, they may or may not process what you say uh, well or recall it the next time you see them. But to be honest is important. So that he's kind of co-opted there. Uh, the family being together, you know, nice touch that he doesn't have a robot. I didn't like that. I wanted him to get back with a robot. Right. Uh, but I, I think there's probably... If you look at the folks who may have uh, come to that decision, the children and the wife, if they gave him another robot, he might start breaking into places again. So, I mean, it's a it's a two-edged sword. Well, and that was the other kind of ambiguous thing about the ending is the facility that he's at. My first thought was it's it's a prison of some sort. And then there's nothing to justify that on screen, but I just kind of left feeling like this was – kind of his incarceration of sorts. Uh, I, I thought it was the, uh, they made reference early in the film to the, I'm not going to the memory center or something like that. And I thought that's where he ended up. Oh, okay. You you may be correct. That may have been more of a custodial relationship there. Well, yeah, poss- I, I, I don't know. Yeah. I don't. I don't know. It did. It didn't seem to me that the daughter would turn him in. I think she'd go back and dig up the tomatoes. Um, <laughs> I, I suspect that the son may have as well to try to take care of the mother. Yeah. Who was just a librarian in a small town. So. Well, again, it's I like that they don't show us what happens next. That that's where they leave it. Uh, you know, I, right. I I I like movies that trust the audience enough to let them fill in some of the holes without having to define everything for them. And I think, you know, is there room for growth with this film? Yes. But I also like the fact that we don't know. As I said, the fact that we don't get, you know, 10, 15 minutes worth of flashbacks, the fact that we leave the story with Frank, it is Robot and Frank is the name of the movie. Let's leave it with him instead of seeing what his kids do. Right. And it's not, uh, you know, normally you'd approach a film like this and the title would be Frank and the Robot. Right. But there's no the robot. Robot was just a name, like Frank and Sue, Alice and, you know, John. It was just Robot and Frank. So right. Yeah. Drives home the characterization. I was all, I was a little surprised Frank did not give him a name. Uh, and, and we haven't mentioned it. I do want to mention Peter Sarsgaard provides the voice for Robot. Yeah. And it's, yeah. a, it's a fantastic performance, especially considering he has to be – pretty bland with his performance. Right. There's a lot of honesty in the way he delivers the lines since he can't hide behind emotion. Yeah, I, I thought it was uh, about as well performed as uh, you could uh, get it, quite frankly. I mean, it, it was uh, – you, you really became uh, affectionate toward the robot because of the voice, not because he was making meals and, and learning how to pick locks. But, you know, his, he, was, uh, he was the conscience. It was like Jiminy Cricket, you know. Ooh, that's back, a good point. Back to your Disney uh, conversation earlier. I like that connection. I hadn't thought about that, but yeah, you're right. So, because he was the one who decided whether or not they could do the jobs. 
I'm, I may not let you do that, Frank. Yeah. I get to decide. So, yeah. What's your favorite uh, movie robot? Because you, you talked a little bit about the history of, of previous robots and how they tie into this one. What's your, your personal favorite? Hmm. Well, um, uh, I'll go back to the first one I discussed, Gort, in uh, The Day the Earth Stood Still, the original Gort. Uh, it, back in, again, those days, I was young, uh, and um, it was all about the, the duality uh, of life. He had, you know, his two two directives, uh, you know, uh, keep Klaatu alive and uh, destroy anything he wants destroyed. And and he was he was scary, and yet at the same time, he could just stand uh, resolute against anything. You know, it wasn't like uh, "don't molest me" or "or I will self-destruct." It's like I don't say anything, but if you molest me, I end up blowing you apart. Right? So, you know, no, no warning. You don't need a warning. You're being nasty. <laughs> so, uh, you know, you keep picking on people. Someday they're going to smack you up the side of the head, uh, and and he does. So, you know, that one that stands out vividly for me. Uh, but a favorite glimpse of robots um, is uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, uh, where the uh, toys are all kind of uh, oh, wandering around and you can come out and play now. And uh, at that particular scene, there was a robot in that that I really liked, that uh, uh, Japanese style. Uh, tin toy robot. type thing, yeah. Tin, tin toy type robot. Because, I mean, I remember those as a, as a child, certainly. That was all. All the rage in the every uh, drugstore or uh, hardware store would have some version of a robot that, you know, I, I, I'm sure I pestered my parents. I, I'd like one of those. I want one of those. <laughs> I, I, I was never allowed to throw tantrums, but uh, I, I knew what the feeling was like. All right. Well, let's take a look at what the algorithm says. This is a kind of a lightning round of movies that you might like based on this movie thrown together by a couple of different sites. So this is kind of a lightning round, your reaction, yes, no, why the hell did it pick this, that kind of thing. Okay. All right. The Man from Earth. Mm, maybe. <laughs> uh, the, the AI Race. Don't know it. Yeah, it's a, it's a documentary. A lot of uh, robot documentaries got pulled up because of this one. I, I think they had less fiction to go to, so a lot of, of documentaries. Uh, a film called Marjorie Prime. Mm, I don't think I've seen that, right? I haven't either. It's from 2017, and the description is a service that provides holographic recreations of deceased loved, one, loved ones allows a woman to come face-to-face -face with the younger version of her late husband. Hmm. Marjorie what? Marjorie Prime. Yeah, I may have to check that one out. Wow, me too. Uh, all right, more more into ones that I think you know. Almost an angel. Yes, there's there's a connection there. I think. What do you <laughs> What do you think the connection is? Because I can't figure it out. Uh, yeah, I, I I don't know. I I think you're just in the in the. Uh, I think sometimes you're just on a peripheral genre. I can see why somebody might put that down. There's no no good reason for it. I mean, it's not like you know, it's an identical uh, match. Okay. Moon. Hmm. I don't know. Have you seen Moon? No. Mm -mm. Oh, you, that's one you need to see. That's from uh, Duncan Jones, who's David Bowie's son. And it's a, a man isolated on a space base. His mission is to do maintenance on this base. He has a robot companion voiced by, I think, Kevin Spacey. So we'll ignore that part. But uh, mm -hmm. it's it's really good. 
Oh, good. It's, it's, it's on par, like the isolation of space and the solitude and the deliberate approach to how they film that is very much on par with Ridley Scott and how he handled the beginning of Alien. Yeah, nice. Yeah, it's really a brilliant film. Uh, Stranger Than Fiction. Hmm, don't know. Yeah, that's another one if you have not seen, I highly recommend. All right, finally, we end with the pop quiz. So four questions somewhat related to the movie. Are you ready? I'll say yes for $20. All right. In this movie, Frank Langella and James Marsden play father and son. Previously, they appeared together playing uncle and nephew in what movie? A, The Box, B, Superman Returns, C, Frost Nixon, or D, Muppets Most Wanted? I'd have to just totally guess. I'll say The Box. Nope, but they did both appear in the box. It's Superman Returns. Frank Langella plays Perry White, the editor of the Daily Planet, and James Marston plays his nephew. Uh, number two, actress Rachel Ma played Robot for all but two days of the film's 20-day shooting schedule. What caused Ma to have to sit out for those two days? A, heat exhaustion, B, family emergency, C, Robot was double booked, or D, Robot union laws? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Does it help to know the answer? <laughs> no, not really. Oh, okay. What was the second choice? <laughs> uh, family emergency. <laughs> yeah, I'll go with a, that. Heat, uh, family emergency. No, it's A, heat exhaustion. <laughs> which <laughs> The reason I found that interesting is because you go back to you know, R2-D2 and C-3PO. Oh, which we yeah. talked about. Our actors playing robots, those costumes heat up. It's not something, you know, 30 years later is still going on. Well, wasn't it uh, uh, back in The Wizard of Oz when they painted up the Tin Man, which was kind of a robot? The, a ori point. the original actor uh, became ill from the paint. Yeah, well, it was asbestos, so yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, number three, Frank Langella is no stranger to robot-filled appearances. What other robot-inclusive project has Langella contributed to? A, video game Destiny 2, B, Star Trek Deep Space Nine, C, Small Soldiers, or D, Masters of the Universe? I'll go with Small Soldiers for uh, $40. Yeah, I'm going to give that to you. It's actually all four. Ah. He's done a lot of films over the course of his uh, career that involve robots in some capacity. Yeah. yeah. Well, you ask me any more questions like that, and I'm going to have to ask my robot. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, I'll just, hey, Google. <laughs> uh, finally, despite a career ranging from Dracula to Captain Fantastic, Langella has only received one Oscar nomination. What role was it for? A, Frank in Robot and Frank. B, Louis Zabel in Wall Street, Money Never Sleeps. C, Richard Nixon in Frost Nixon. Or D, William Paley in Good Night and Good Luck. I'll go with uh, Good Night and Good Luck. Nope, Nixon. Really? It's, it's his sole Oscar nomination. He didn't win. Did you see Frost Nixon? No. Oh my goodness. That's another one you need to check out. See, you're walking away with a gold mine of films here to check well, out. I, I gave you five films at the top of the hour. <laughs> you did. You did. <laughs> I'm just returning the favor. <laughs> Last question that I meant to ask earlier and I, I blanked on, are you polite to your robot assistants? Oh, no. Really? Robin is. I. She tends, if they do something for you, she tends to say thank you to get them to stop. And right. I'll, say, I'll say stop or often they come on and, you know, it's like, I don't know the answer to that and I'll, you know, bite me comes out often. Uh, <laughs> 
<laughs> and then I have to open the app and then delete all of what it's recorded in the past 24 days or something. <laughs> all right, Dad. Well, thank you so much for bringing uh, Robot and Frank to the table. This has been a, I'm really glad to have seen this movie. It's been on my list for a while, and I'm, I'm glad that I finally got to watch it. I enjoyed it a lot. Well, this has been fun. We have to do it again. Regular listeners may have noticed that at the end of the interview, I didn't ask my dad if he had anything to plug. I know he's not active on social media and definitely doesn't have his own podcast or website to promote. However, shortly after we finished recording, he sent me a text message suggesting listeners might want to consider donating to the Alzheimer's Association. As he put it, it's a very real and very life-changing disease. You can find out more information and make a contribution to the Alzheimer's Association at alz.org. So let me know what you think about this week's episode. You can find me at Town Hess on Twitter or the show at Have Not Seen This on Twitter. On Facebook, we are at Have Not Seen This Podcast or email me at Have Not Seen This at gmail.com. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to the show so you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes, including next week's pick, which might bring us some Lovecraftian horror, albeit a little late for Halloween. This podcast is available on Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or you can just use the RSS feed to subscribe through whatever podcatcher you prefer. Positive ratings and reviews are always welcome, although I'd appreciate it more if you just helped spread the word and help me build up some listeners. Special thanks to Chris Talent for our wonderful theme song, and thanks to my dad, Ron Telsch, for providing this week's conversation. Maybe you have a movie you'd like to talk about, one that means something to you or you're particularly astonished when you discover people have not seen. Come be a guest on the show. Head over to havenotseenthis.podbean.com, click the Be a Future Guest button, submit the form there, and we'll get you set up for a future episode. Until next week, I'm Rafe Telsch, and this has been Have Not Seen This.